All right. We are very near the end of a series that is an overview of the whole Bible. And I'm so pumped about where we get to go for the end of this series, because for this week and the next two weeks, we get to talk about the future. That's right. So the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at what the Bible says hasn't happened yet, but is going to happen. Uh, that, there's a fancy theological word for that whole area. It's called eschatology. Um, eschatos means last in the Greek language, so eschatology is the study of the last things. And, uh, you know, there's lots of different views that Christians have on the subject of eschatology. Um, tonight, you get mine. You don't necessarily have to agree, um, but just know that there's lots of different views out there. And um, I'm just going to try to preach from the text. Um, we always want to take things back to the text of Scripture and let your arguments be sorted out there. But one thing that just is true, no matter where you're at, kind of with views of the Bible's uh, <clears throat> things, you know, statements about the future, is that you, know, you should just be really thankful if you are a Christian here tonight, or even if you're not, um, just that the Bible actually does disclose to us things that haven't happened yet. God is gracious enough that he actually has let us in on his plan. Um, you know, our culture suffers from tremendous anxiety because secularism says there's no such thing as a meaning to history. So one famous atheist, a philosopher named John Gray, has said that looking for meaning in history is like looking for patterns in clouds. It's just kind of random. There's no rhyme or reason to how history, much less the future, will unfold. But the Bible, as has been said, is more up-to-date than tomorrow's newspaper, and it claims to reveal what is yet to happen. And by the way, I just want, you to, I want to start out tonight by telling you, it's got a pretty good track record. Um, so, you know, you might be familiar with certain prophecies in the Old Testament about the first coming of Jesus. Things that Jesus couldn't control, like where he was born, for example. And in his first coming, he fulfilled many of those. Or, uh, let me give you a modern day example. So, fun fact, the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, written, gosh, thousands of years ago, it predicts that God will bring the Jewish people back to their homeland in Palestine, and that the land of Palestine, which for centuries has been a desolate desert, will rebloom. Uh, just, I'll read you a verse or two. This is Ezekiel 36. This is God speaking, uh, speaking to the Jewish people. Um, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And then a little further down, the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, the la uh, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate uh, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. And that is happening in your lifetime. And the Bible predicted it thousands of years ago. So pretty remarkable. Uh, now, the way I want to just kind of get into our topic for tonight uh, from Matthew 24 is I want to point out that as we've been going through the whole story of the Bible— you might have noticed that there's actually a pretty significant unresolved plot line. There's an unresolved plot line in all that we've looked at so far. Now, think about the, uh, the Old Testament. Just think about where we've come from. So in the Old Testament, God calls a nation, the nation of Israel, and he calls them to be his own nation. He promises to save them, and he promises to use them to save the world. Okay, so... Thumbs up so far. Hope you, hopefully you remember that from a little ways back. And true enough, you know, we've seen that some of that's been fulfilled. Jesus is Jewish. And he's, uh, you know, he, he's a descendant of the man Jacob, who is also called Israel. So Jesus is an Israelite. And so through Israel, God saves the world, specifically through 
a specific Israelite through Jesus, God has saved the world. However, if you know your New Testament well, then you'll know that in Romans 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul notices that there is an unresolved plot line as well. Because he points out in those chapters that Israel, you know, or the Jews, they have saved the world through Jesus, but they themselves aren't saved. That by and large, the majority of the Jewish people rejected their own Messiah, and they are not currently experiencing the salvation blessings that God promised to them. Now, of course, you know, if you read those chapters, Paul points out, that's not true of every single Jewish person, like Paul and Peter and all the other apostles. They were Jewish, so, you know, there always have been some. But the majority of the Jews did not. It says in John chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus, he came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. And instead, what's happened over the last 2,000 years, give or take, is that the gospel's gone out to the Gentiles. So if you're here tonight and you're like, hey, I'm, I'm like not Jewish, I don't have any Jewish ancestry, um, that means that you are a Gentile. A Gentile is anyone who is not Jewish. And right now, the gospel has gone out around the world to all the Gentiles. It was you know, completely mind-blowing to the early church. They didn't realize that that's what was going to happen. So the question, though, is what about God's promises to the Jews? And in Romans 11, what Paul reveals is that one day, God's going to resolve that plot line. And that because he's a faithful God who never breaks a promise, one day, he's going to again take up his dealings with the Jews. And as Paul predicts in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. So uh, some of you guys might know um, the story that Jesus tells. The story, usually we call it the, the parable of the prodigal son. And actually, it's about two sons, not just one son. You know, there's the younger son, and he's kind of the typical quote-unquote sinner. You know, he takes his father's money, he runs far away, he spends all of that money in wild living, and then he, you know, hits rock bottom, and then he kind of comes to his senses, comes back to his father. And you might know the story that the younger brother comes home and is embraced by his father. And if you were a Jewish listener listening to that story, you might think, huh, you know, that younger brother, he's kind of like those Gentiles. You know, the Gentiles, they, they don't have, you know, God's word, like the Jews did. Uh, they're the ones who are living in all these sinful ways. That's what, 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 are the, what the Jews and Jesus' day would have thought about the Gentiles. But then you may remember there's another brother. There's the older brother. And the older brother is the one who follows all the rules. He stays home. He does what his father tells him to do. And when the younger brother comes home, the older brother is furious because he thinks, you know, here I've been slaving this whole time, and my younger brother is getting to have a feast thrown for him? When he's, like, been the, the sinner, the naughty kid, that's not fair. I've been following all the rules. Shouldn't I get a party instead of him? <clears throat> and if you remember the end of the story, the story ends on a cliffhanger. The father goes out to the older brother, but we don't know if the older brother actually comes back inside to the party. It's a cliffhanger. We, we, we're not told. And the reason I bring this up is that in some ways, you know, I mentioned that the younger brother's a bit like the Gentiles. The older brother is a little bit like uh, the Jews of Jesus' day who thought that they didn't need salvation because they had been obeying all the rules, following the law. And so there's a cliffhanger in this story because Jesus comes for his own people. He comes to the Jewish people. But in light of the fact that they don't believe they, they need his salvation, they reject him. And you're kind of left wondering, well, will the Jews actually respond to the offer of salvation and come into those promises that God has made them? And Romans 11 says that they will. That one day the brother will come back inside the house. 
And so that's what we're looking at tonight, the conversion of Israel and the tying together of all these really important pieces of this one biblical plot line. And just by the way, you might be wondering, why is this important? Um, the reason that this is so important is that on this question hangs the very character of God. If God doesn't fulfill the promises that he's made to Israel, then he's not a faithful God. And you should be asking yourself tonight, how on earth can I ever trust this God for myself? So this, this really matters. It really matters. So uh, now to get into this, um, we're going to look at this passage uh, from the Gospel of Matthew that explains a little bit about how God is going to take up his dealings with the Jewish people again. So go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. And instead of reading this whole thing, I'm going to just kind of go through this section by section, starting actually with a couple verses from the chapter before. So let me read from the top of the handout here, just the first three verses. And this is Jesus speaking. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this is the context of Matthew 24. Jesus is leaving the temple. And in the previous chapter, you know, what we just read, he, he's just delivered a pretty final rebuke of the Jewish leaders. And he concludes it uh, like what we just read. And, and what he just says here, it tells you at least three things. First of all, it's emphasizing that the Jewish nation has rejected Jesus pretty dramatically when, they've, when he's come to them the first time. And so his departure from the temple is symbolic of the fact that he's now set aside the Jewish nation because of their rejection of him temporarily. And then, number two, Jesus' words here also reflect what Romans 11 teaches, that this setting aside is not permanent. Because notice what Jesus says here. He says, you will not see me again until... So there's a time limit on the Jews being set aside. And Jesus is predicting here that one day he and the Jews will be reconciled. And then third, when the Jewish nation sees him again, they will no longer be rejecting him. Because they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So something will ha have happened that will change the heart of the Jewish people so that when Jesus returns, they'll finally be prepared to receive him as Messiah. So what is that something? Um, what's going to prepare them for Jesus' return? And the answer is what Jesus gives you here in Matthew 24. So does that kind of make sense of what, what we're about to read? Hopefully it does. Uh, I want to start just by looking at how the chapter opens. Uh, you know, by the way, I'm not going <laughs> to, we're not going to have time to look at every single little detail in this passage. It's a very detailed chapter for sure, but that's why we have small groups later so you can look at this for yourself. <laughs> but let me just uh, help us get into it. I'm going to read the first two verses here, verses one and two. Uh, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, they, uh, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. All right, so uh, up on the screen here, there's a picture of the Jewish temple. This is, well, okay, when I say a picture, it's actually a model of the Jewish temple. Um, so uh, it's like, isn't that, I think it's in, uh, isn't it Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where they're trying to like go to Camelot, and then they say, oh, it's only a model. Uh, that's only a model. It's not, the, it's not the actual temple. But anyway, that's what it would have looked like. <laughs> 
And you can tell it's, it's absolutely massive. I mean, this is like an enormous, enormous building that would have been considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. But in AD 70, so this was about 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Romans came in under General Titus and they conquered the city of Jerusalem. And they destroyed the city and they raised the temple to the ground. It was a devastating judgment for a nation that had rejected their own Messiah. And Jesus um, prophesies here that every stone will be thrown down. That's actually what happened. Because when the Romans burned the temple down, the gold of the temple melted into the cracks of the stones. And so the Romans had to literally dismantle it stone by stone in order to salvage, uh, to salvage it. So, so what Jesus says here, uh, it came true. So this prompts the disciples then to ask three questions. You know, Jesus has told them, hey, like the very center of the Jewish religion is going to be destroyed. And they're like, oh my gosh, okay, well, we've got some questions about this. Here's their three questions that they come and ask Jesus. And this is in verse three. So the questions are, number one, when will these things be? In other words, so when is the temple going to be destroyed, Jesus? And then number two, what will be the sign of your coming? And number three, and of the end of the age. So those are their three questions. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting about this uh, that raises a question for us, why would the disciples associate the destruction of the temple with the end of the age? You know, where did they get that idea from? Jesus didn't mention that. Well, it's because they actually knew their Old Testaments. And if you go back to the Old Testament, there's a number of places where the return of the Messiah to kind of conclude one age and, and introduce the next was, would be, was associated with the destruction of Jerusalem. And so just I'll give you one example that's from the book of Daniel. So this is Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. And this is, a, this is an Old Testament prophecy about Jerusalem. And it says, The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the cities, that's Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, which is the temple, its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. So do you see how there's an association there in that prophecy between the end and the temple being destroyed? So when the disciples hear, oh, temple, destruction, they think, okay, end of the age. And so that's why they ask Jesus these three questions. Now, the reason that I wanted to take us back to Daniel in particular is that in order to really understand Matthew 24, you have to understand a little bit about this particular prophecy. So what I want to start with tonight, before we even really get, get to Matthew 24, is we're going to go back to Daniel chapter 9. If you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you, flip right now to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. This little uh, chapter contains one of the most, it's like the most amazing prophecy, I, I think, potentially in the whole Bible. Because uh, as you'll see here, this, this is a, a prophecy about not just the coming of Jesus, but about a number of other things as well. So uh, Daniel 9, and we're going to look at just the last four verses really quick just to kind of set ourselves up here. And I'm going to read this just verse by verse and kind of help see if I can explain this for us. So uh, let me just start with verse 24. The beginning of the prophecy says, Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people. Now this is talking to Daniel. Daniel's Jewish. Decreed for your people and your holy city. To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, for reasons that we don't have time to get into tonight, when it says 77, sevens there is just referring to a period of seven years. 
So 70 sevens would be 70 times seven, which uh, anyone know what that is? 490, okay. You guys didn't think you'd have to do math tonight to read the Bible, did you? But you do. 490 years, 490 years. So this prophecy is actually a timetable. And then there's also a group of people that this timetable is specifically for. It doesn't just say it's for anybody, but it says it's for your, holy, uh, for your people and your holy city. And because this is being addressed to Daniel, this would, this would have to refer to the Jews and to Jerusalem. And God says that there's six things that are going to happen in that span of 490 years. And you can see them up on the screen. You can read them there in verse 24. But basically, the first three all have to do with forgiveness of sin. Like, how is God going to forgive the sins of Daniel's people? And then, number, the, the last three have to do with restoration. How is he going to restore Daniel's people? So that's what this is about. It's a timetable, 490 years for the Jews and for Jerusalem. And there are these six things that are going to happen that will kind of wrap up God's major dealings with, with the Jewish nation. Let's go to the next verse. Verse 25. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes. By the way, anointed one is just the word Messiah, Mashiach. Until the Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. So now what we find out here is you have a start date for when the timetable begins. It says, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And again, I, you know, we're not going to have time to really get into this tonight, but there's a couple of different options in Scripture for what this particular decree could be. And pretty much, I think, without question, the best candidate for that is found in the book of Nehemiah. It's Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. And this is where the king, uh, King Artaxerxes, gives Nehemiah permission to go back and to rebuild not just the temple, that happened under the time of Ezra, but the temple, uh, not, just, not the temple, but the city. So remember, the, the start date has to do with the re rebuilding of the city, and that's what you get in Nehemiah chapter 2. Now the thing is, historically, we actually can date when that decree was. It was March 5th, 444 B.C. And I don't know how that got calculated, but I'm sure some smart person did some work, and that's, you know, there you go. So just take, let's just, just go with that date. There's our start date. So it says that from that date until the anointed one, the ruler, comes... There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. So uh, again, let's do a little math. So seven plus 62 is? 69. 69. Thank you, Cameron. Well, very confident, well spoken. 69 of the sevens. So remember, there's 70 sevens. We've got just the first 69 of them here. So 69 times seven, a little more difficult. Anyone know what that is? 483 years. So in 483 years from March 5th, 444 BC, we're learning here that we can expect two things will happen. The anointed one will come, and then the city will be rebuilt. So let's do a little calculating here. Uh, now, you, now, this gets a little complicated because the Jewish calendar uses days based on the lunar calendar, 360 days. We use a solar calendar. You've got to convert it into days, and then you have to just do a bunch of math stuff. And I, you know, just 
we, if you want to get into this later, then we can come talk about it later. But basically, um, take not, not even really my word for it, take the word of other smart people who have calculated this, which is where I've pulled this information from tonight. But basically, the number of days would be 173,880 uh, days. Uh, so when you add that number of days to March 5th, 444 BC, here's what you get. You get March 30th, 33 AD. Now this, some people believe, coincides with Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So uh, I'm going to show you something. I, I can't actually prove this to you, but I just want to make a suggestion to you tonight. This is Luke 19.42. This is the scene where Jesus marches into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and he reveals himself as the king of the Jews. And he says, if, he's talking to Jerusalem. He says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace but now it is hidden from your eyes. Now, why does he say this day? I would suggest to you it's because he knows that if the Jewish leaders had been paying attention to their book of Daniel, they could have known that it was exactly on that day that they should have expected the Messiah to reveal himself to them. Pretty amazing. So, let's uh, just keep going here. Uh, this is Daniel 9.26. Just going to keep working through it. It says, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Now, what does that sound like to you? It sounds like Jesus' death, doesn't it? And then uh, the next part of this verse, it says, the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. About 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Roman general Titus came in and he destroyed Jerusalem and raised it to the ground. And then the uh, next part of this verse, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. Okay, we've got one verse left. And before we get to that one verse, there's, there's, there's a really important question we have to ask ourselves here. We've seen so far 69 of the sevens, 483 years. But the timetable is for 70 sevens, 490 years. The question is, what happened to the seven years? Where's the missing seven? <laughs> uh, you know, so we've, we, the first 69 sevens take us up to 8033. And then you'll notice there's actually a gap because the next event in the timetable is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. You know, that doesn't take place until 8070. So that's, you know, what is that? It's like 37 years, I guess, after, after that. So th there's a gap of some amount of time until the next event. And, uh, and then um, come to the last verse. So Daniel 9.27, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. There it is. In the middle of the seven, so okay, what's, what's half of seven? Three and a half. Okay, so sometime around three and a half years, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So there's our 70th seven. There's our missing seven years. And uh, what we find out here is that someone, you know, the text just refers to him as he. Um, it could be that it's referring back to Jesus, the anointed one. But it seems like Jesus kind of does some things. It doesn't seem like things that Jesus would do. You know, like he'll be destroyed. I don't know that that really applies to Jesus. Um, there's another candidate for who that would be, and that would be the people of the ruler who will come. So a different person. 
And we're not going to get into all this tonight, but basically we're given a prophecy that someone else is going to come. He's going to do a number of things. He'll make a covenant for seven years. Halfway through, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. He'll set up an abomination of desolation in the temple, and he'll be destroyed. Now, why does this matter? Why are we starting here? Well, because Jesus makes direct reference to this prophecy in Matthew 24. So if you don't understand this prophecy you probably won't understand Matthew 24. So now, let's go back to Matthew 24. And let's go back to the disciples' three questions, starting with question number one. Which, remember, this is the question about when will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? Uh, Now, in Matthew's version, Matthew doesn't really record Jesus' super direct answer to this question. If you go to the parallel account in Luke's gospel, Luke 21, uh, that's where Jesus explains specifically some information about when the temple will be destroyed. Uh, But instead, in in Matthew's version, the events of AD 70 are used as a type or a shadow of the end of the age. He's saying the end of the age will be like the period of what happened in AD 70. And, And by the way, you see this a lot of times in scripture where one thing is a type or a shadow of another. You know, like an obvious example would be like Moses or David are figures in the Old Testament who are shadows of Jesus. You know, King David, a lot of the events of his life anticipate the life of Jesus. So that's what we're going to do just to, to kind of address this first question. Let's actually jump now to the third question that they ask. So they want to know, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Uh, now at this point, let, let's, let's kind of get into an answer uh, for that. You'll, you'll find Jesus' answer to that that third question in verses 4 through 28. And I'm going to read here for you just uh, the first half of that, 4 through 14. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, in this little chunk here, you notice there's a number of different details that Jesus mentions. He mentions that there will be false messiahs who will come. There have been many people who have claimed to be the messiah throughout history who have not been. Uh, There will be wars. He says you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. He mentions famines and earthquakes. He mentions people being put to death. And the point here is that these are what you might call non-signs. Non-signs. These are not the the ultimate signs of the end. Because notice what Jesus says. So look at verse 6. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Or uh, verse 8. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So the question then is, okay, if Jesus is saying, you know, these are, these are not 
the, the, the actual signs. Uh, you know, some people do think that these might be signs that kind of uh, occur maybe with greater frequency as you get closer to the end. Some people have pointed out there's actually some parallels here between the seal judgments in Revelation chapter 6. Uh, we don't have time to get into that tonight, but um, so it's possible that these might uh, kind of immediately precede, you know, the, the steps right before the end. But Jesus says, if you're looking for the actual end, these are not the signs you're looking for. Uh, you know that line in Star Wars where they're looking for the, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for. These are not the signs you're looking for. Okay, the, what, the question now is, what are the actual signs? Well, that's what you get in verses 15 through 28. And um, just, okay, to kind of get at this, I, I want you just to meditate a little bit, <laughs> not, not too much here, uh, but uh, just, just think about this metaphor Jesus uses of birth pains. So, you know, if you're going through a pregnancy, you, know, you probably know that like, there's things like morning sickness. Uh, by the way, I'm not speaking out of my own experience tonight. Um, and it's really hard. You know, like you're, 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 you're under the weather quite a bit. It's like you're, you know, as there's like a life that's literally growing inside the womb. But then when the baby comes, the mom enters into labor. So like it was kind of hard for the first nine months. But then like when labor comes, like that's like a lot of pain and suffering. Like and a pretty concentrated little dose there, Right. Before the joy of the baby being born. So in this passage, this is about Jesus' return, right? Like it's looking ahead to like the most joyous chapter of human history. The golden age is actually ahead of us. And it's when Jesus comes back to reign. And he's saying that before that happens, there'll be a time of suffering. Uh, kind of like when a woman goes into labor before her child is born. And this period, Jesus calls in verse 29, the tribulation. The tribulation. And so that's the question. What are the signs that tell you the tribulation has begun? <laughs> well, here's the sign. Here's the sign. It's verse 15. It's verse 15. It says here, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Now, Jesus is saying a pretty radical thing here. Uh, so if you go back to Daniel, the, you know, the prophecy is that someone was going to come invade the temple and they were going to set up an abomination of desolation. And many interpreters, both then and now, believe that that prophecy has already been fulfilled. The reason they believe that is that about 150 years before Jesus, there was a, a, a pagan king named Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes uh, was an enemy of the Jewish people, and he and his armies swept into Jerusalem and they attacked it. And Antiochus Epiphanes went into the Jewish temple and he sacrificed a pig, which was an unclean animal. So it was a, a complete desecration of the most holy site of, of, of biblical religion. And so when people read Daniel chapter 9, they say, oh, well, this has to be talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. That's what the abomination of desolation must be. It must have been something that already happened in the past. You know, maybe even the disciples would have thought this. But this is why what Jesus says here is so remarkable. Because what Jesus reveals in Matthew 24 is that it actually hasn't happened yet. He says, when you see future tense. Now remember, the whole abomination of desolation thing, that is something that happens in the 70th seven, the missing seven years. So what Jesus is doing here is he's taking Daniel's 70th seven, the last seven years, and he's kicking it into the future. He's kicking it into the future. 
And so if you look at the words of Jesus as kind of your authoritative voice on the end times, Jesus is saying those events of that last verse of the end of chapter 9 haven't happened yet. And if you look at other places in Scripture, what I believe you will see is that all of these different predictions, when you bring them together, predict that there's going to be a figure that Scripture refers to as the Antichrist. He'll come, he'll make a covenant halfway through that that three and a half, uh, seven years, three and a half years in, there'll be an abomination of desolation that he is involved in setting up. And a little bit later tonight, one of the questions actually has you go and read a couple of other passages in the Bible, 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 13. I want to encourage you, read those passages because they will give you a bit more information. Um, And actually, they'll help you realize what the abomination of desolation is. We're not going to get into what it is, but that is the sign. Jesus says, when you see, you know, whatever that thing is, whatever the abomination is set up in the temple, that's your cue that things are about to get bad. (laughs) So now, now with kind of that in view, let me keep reading, starting from verse 15. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect." See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now I want you to notice that there's some pretty interesting terminology that Jesus is using in this section. So if you've, uh, the next slide, I think, shows you some of it here. Notice that a lot of this terminology has to do with Israel. So the, the first part, you will be hated by all nations. Nations just means Gentiles. <laughs> uh, and then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I mean, last time I looked, I don't think we live in Judea. This is specifically giving instructions to those who are living in, in Judea. And then it says, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Now, you know, we celebrate the Lord's Day. It's kind of the technical term, which is Sunday. Sabbath is actually Saturday. Uh, Jews observe the Sabbath. Uh, many Orthodox Jews do still. And so these things all pertain particularly to the Jews. Why, you know, why, why, why that focus? Well, remember Daniel chapter 9. What are the 77s, the 490 years, primarily for? They're for the Jewish people and for the city of Jerusalem. And specifically, I believe that these words of Jesus are particularly intended for the Jews of a future day. If you notice here, there's, there's actually evidence that there's more than one kind of audience you can pick out in this text. One, of course, is the apostles. They're the ones who are actually there listening to Jesus say all these things. But did you notice that 
you know, whether this is Jesus or maybe even Matthew himself, he inserts a little parenthesis there in verse 15. He says, let the reader understand. And I believe that this is actually referring to the reader of this prophecy. And he's saying, if you're someone who's reading this prophecy during the events as they're unfolding, like, listen up, pay attention, because these instructions are for you. And so what you have here are instructions to the Jews who are alive in the tribulation. How to be saved from the Antichrist's reign and survive the tribulation. And in fact, if you go ahead to the book of Revelation uh, in, in chapter 12, there's actually a reference to this very same thing. And I, again, don't have time to get into all of it tonight. But Revelation chapter 12 is, is sort of like a, uh, an apocalyptic picture. Uh, there's a woman, and again, for reasons we don't have time to get into, the woman is a picture of Israel. It says, the woman was given the, great, uh, the, wings, the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Um, time, times, and half a time is a biblical way of saying three and a half years. The exact same amount of time that both Daniel 9 and Matthew 24 are predicting. You might be asking, okay, well, if these things are primarily with reference to um, the Jewish people who... God is preparing for his return. What about the church? What about believers like us? Um, this is a whole other sermon. My belief, and you can arm wrestle me about this later, is that the church is removed from the earth prior to that time. This is getting into the doctrine of the rapture. <laughs> the question is not whether it happens. The question is when it happens. Does it happen before the tribulation? Does it happen in the middle? Does it happen at the end? My view is it's before. We can get into it later. But uh, if, you wanna, you know, if you're curious, come talk to me afterward. <laughs> so that, that then kind of takes us right to the very uh, end of this, this section, which now takes us to the last question that the disciples wanted to know about. So we looked at number one. Uh, we looked at number three. Let's actually circle back now to the second question that they ask, which is, what will be the sign of your coming? And you get this in verses 29 through 31. Let me read this here. Immediately after the tribulation of those days... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So if you look at verse 27 right before this, Christ's return is compared to lightning in the sky. So when you see lightning in the sky, you know, it's pretty obvious. You know, you can be like hundreds of miles apart from someone and you guys can both see it at the same time. And so what Jesus is saying here is that when he returns, it's going to be clear, unmistakable. Everyone's going to see it. You're not going to be like, hey, was that him? You're like, oh, it'll be super obvious that it was him. <laughs> And sure enough, look at verse 29. You know, like, if you want to see how obvious it is, well, look at what Jesus says is going to happen. Like, these cosmic signs of, like, the sun and the moon being darkened and the stars falling, all this crazy stuff. Then verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Uh, We're not really told what that sign is, but apparently it'll be something big and obvious that will be, you know, noticeable by everybody. And then it says that you'll see Je- we'll see Jesus return. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The second coming of Jesus. We know that he came the first time 
to bear judgment. He went to the cross and he took your sin and my sin and our sin and he suffered an unjust substitutionary death in your place as our suffering savior. But when he comes back, he'll come not to bear judgment, but to bring judgment and set everything wrong to right. And this is a prophecy of that day. Now, there's one final question here. The final question is, what, is the, what, what really is the time frame for all this? How do we really know when all of these things take place? And this is important because there's lots of different views about this, as I said. And many would, would look at this chapter and say that this chapter actually only has to do with the events of AD 70. Um, and that, you know, all of the, the destruction here, all of these crazy signs, all of those things refer to when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. And so they look at the return of Jesus being spoken of here as him returning spiritually in order to pass judgment on the Jewish nation for rejecting him. And just, you know, I'm not going to try to argue this really for you, but I think the problem that I would see with that is that it's just not what the text says. There's a much easier way to interpret the text at face value. Uh, but the reason that many would have that view about it all being fulfilled back in AD 70 is that there's one little, little kind of niggling verse here that just causes a lot of trouble. It's verse 34. And it says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so you can kind of see the problem. It almost makes it sound like all of these things, including Jesus' return, are going to happen within the lifetime of the disciples. Now, of course, AD 70 fits into that, but oh my goodness, the year 2023 or whatever definitely does not. <laughs> so the problem is, like, what do, you, what do you do? with What do you do with verse 34? Well, I actually think there's a pretty easy solution to this. And again, it's to go back and remember that there's multiple audiences here in this text. The, the, when it says this generation, Jesus is referring to the generation of those who see these signs. You know, remember, if you go back to Daniel, there's a gap of more than 2,000 years between, you know, the 69th seven and the 70th seven. And so if you're one of, the, one of the people living through the terrible events of the tribulation, and you're waiting for the Messiah to come, you, you know, you're, you, you follow Jesus' instructions, you flood the city, you're, you're, you're being sheltered and protected, uh, waiting for him to return. But you're probably thinking, oh my gosh, you know, how much longer do we have to hold on? You know, what if there's another gap? What do we have to wait another 2,000 years for him to come back? And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. If you are a part of the generation that sees all of these signs, you know, of the abomination, desolation, all that stuff, then you will be a part of the generation that sees my return. There will be no more gap, no more delay. Does that make sense? So this is a very practical chapter. You know, notice that Jesus even is so tender and so caring that he even, you know, he, he says, man, like, pray that your flight doesn't take place on the Sabbath or in winter. He's concerned for the welfare of the people who are awaiting his return. And so he gives them these special instructions so that they will know how they can survive the events of those days. Now, what's the purpose of all of this? How does this apply to us? <laughs> in some ways, I would suggest to you that really it's not fundamentally about us. There's a lot of information here that kind of gives you light on what the return of Christ will look like. Uh, but, but, let me just, let me draw out at least kind of one implication. Um, you guys might know in the Old Testament, there's the story of Joseph and his brothers. You guys know that story? Um, you know, Joseph is a type of Christ. 
Um, He's rejected by his brothers. His brothers sell him into slavery. For many, many years, Joseph suffers unjustly because of what his brothers have done, in the same way that Jesus is rejected by his own Jewish brethren. But then you may remember, uh, there's a seven-year famine. Interesting, seven years. And it forces Joseph's brothers to go to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, who's now been raised to be the second in command of all of the land of Egypt. And the first time, Joseph's brothers don't recognize him. Kind of sounds like the way that the Jews didn't recognize their Messiah the, time, the first time he came to them. But then God uses those seven years of suffering and famine to bring about a set of circumstances that results in Joseph's brother's repentance. And they repent of what they did to their brother. And on their second visit... Joseph makes himself known to them. And the whole family is reconciled. What the scriptures are promising, and even, not even the, just the New Testament, what the Old Testament itself promises, is that the same thing is one day going to take place to the Jewish people, uh, or for the Jewish people, that God longs to reconcile them to himself in fulfillment of the promises that he has made. Look at this prophecy from the book of Zechariah. This is Zechariah, a um, little bit of chapter 12 and verse, uh, chapter 13. And I will pour out, this is God talking, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. This will be one of the most moving scenes in all human history. Because when Jesus returns to the remnant of the Jewish people that are alive on the earth at that time, it says that they will recognize him. The Messiah has returned. And yet they'll realize he has holes in his hands. He has holes in his feet. There's a wound in his side. This is Jesus. We rejected him, and yet he still has not rejected us. It says in Romans eleven twenty eight. Of the people of Israel, they are still the people he loves because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promises of God are irrevocable. And the reason this applies to us is that all of this is a demonstration of the gospel. I mean, come on, like, you've, like, gone through the whole Old Testament with us now, like, God gave his people a whole lot of light. Like, he gave them a lot of information about, like, here's who the Messiah is going to be. Here's what he's going to look like when he comes. And they rejected him. And you would think that if anyone would be worthy of being cut out of the plan of God and just utterly, like, rejected, you know, un, you know no longer able to, 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 to have salvation, wouldn't it be them? And yet this verse says they are still the people he loves because God is a faithful God. And that is the character of God that's extended to each one of us. 
You know, if you wake up tomorrow and you wind up falling into a sin that's just way more horrifying than anything you could have ever even imagined yourself capable of, you can't outrun the grace of God. There's always a way back. You can always repent. You can't outrun the grace of God. And the conclusion of this age of human history will be one of the greatest demonstrations to the world of what that gospel is. Let me pray for us. Father, um, it's just so fun to look at the events that you say are ahead. And I know that sometimes um, just these themes about the, the end of the age, the end of the world, can just be subjects that raise a lot of fear um, in people's minds. Father, I pray that that would not be their result tonight. Um, Lord, just as we've seen, would the things that the Bible tells us about the future be an enormous source of hope? Because when all is said and done, your son will be exalted. His gospel will be manifested to the world. And it says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Father, we thank you that the end of the story is good. In Jesus' name, amen.